The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. We live in a fast-paced, hectic world where it is easy to feel overwhelmed, stressed, and out of control. How do you manage all the competing pressures without losing your sense of yourself? How do you stay focused enough to not only plot a path, but follow it? Welcome to Master Your Life, a show that offers inspiration, insight, and intelligence, as well as success stories for many walks of life that can show you how you can control your own destiny. Our knowledgeable and entertaining hosts and their guests give practical advice that you can use every day in the quest to master your life. Now, here are your hosts, Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin. Welcome to Master Your Life. I'm Leah Mattinson, and along this week with my co-host, Dr. Howard Rankin, we just love to uh, invite you to join us in this inspiring show of insight, intelligence, and inspiration. Uh, Howard, just wondering how your week has been this week. Um, it's been busy, um, but it's been it's been pretty good, actually. I've uh, Feeling a lot better than I have been over the last couple of weeks. If uh, the listeners were following along, I, I got some sort of nasty sinus infection. And interestingly enough, um, the view around here from the doctors is that because we had that hurricane that came through that wiped out 125,000 trees, um, there's so many spores and pollen in the air that people who ha- normally have colds that last three or four days, they're just going on for like two, two or three weeks. So it's kind of interesting that that environment would have that impact. But um, apart from that, I'm fine. Have you been working, I'm sure you have, mm-hmm. on your Huntington's disease projects? Have you been doing anything with that this week? Yes, I, absolutely I have, <laughs> as, as with every week. And so... Uh, listeners who listen in know that we have uh, that I've written a book called um, uh, Silver Linings: uh, Your Essential Guide to Courage, Self-Esteem, and Wellness. And my take on Huntington's disease in our family. And I'm absolutely thrilled this week um, to actually be bringing a different perspective to kind of care in Huntington's, but also the bigger issues of hospice care, um, grieving, and bereavement. And we have this, uh, I just met this wonderful lady actually over one of our Huntington support groups. And her name is Therese Kircher Marin. And she has written a book called Watching Their Dance, Three Sisters, a Genetic Disease, and Marrying into a Family at Risk for Huntington's Disease. And Therese's book is entirely different than mine. Um, and it's, she's written it as a tool to heighten awareness, hopefully creating more interest in Huntington's disease, and more donations to support uh, Huntington's disease research. Now, Therese is not just an author. She also has her Master's of Science in Healthcare Administration, and her passion is really deeply helping others. She's worked for 20 years in the healthcare industry, with 10 of those in hospice. And so I'm just absolutely thrilled, Therese, to have you with us today. 
because as you say, tomorrow is not promised to anyone. So without further ado, uh, welcome Therese to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm glad to, to be here with you. It's wonderful. So maybe we could just start out, Therese, with you can you can maybe just tell us about how did you actually, like, what's your story? How did you get into this this family with Huntington's disease and about the family itself? Well, it goes back many years. Um, my uh, my fiancé um, and I were in college together, and we were planning to get married. And um, he his mother was never in the picture, and he had three lovely sisters that he was very close to. And I would ask, you know, what happened to your mom? Well, nobody knew. The father never had told them why their mother was in Napa State Hospital. And so the sisters, they um, reached out to distant family members that they hadn't seen in a long time and discovered the family secret that their mother had Huntington's disease along with aunts and uncles and grandparents. And so I, at that time, um, I, I had a relatively normal family, you know, a mother and a father at home and, and grandparents that were still alive. And this just scared me to death when I read about Huntington's disease and the risk that um, if your parent had Huntington's, then you then had a 50-50 chance of inheriting that mutated gene. And so I um, was, as I said, very nervous about it, and I broke off our engagement. And that's how my book begins, is, is us mm. learning about the secret, and then my journey to find my way back to the love of my life. And well, so, um, I'm that's sorry, go funny. ahead. No, that's just fascinating. One question I have in mind, and I know that both you and Leah have worked a lot in this field. How common is it for parents not to tell offspring about the condition? I mean, this seemed pretty blatant. The mom was um, so impacted she was actually hospitalized. Mm-hmm. How, how common is, is simply not telling? Do you guys have any idea? Well, from my experience, people that I've talked with in the HD community, it's common. Mm. And, you know, as I became older, I understood where his father was coming from. The father would never tell them, and he was protecting them. Mm. But in the same sense, they had a right to know. Yes. Yeah. And also for the listenership, it would be great if you could just highlight what is what is Huntington's disease? This is for people who aren't familiar with it. What is Huntington's disease? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Huntington's is it's a fatal um, genetic disorder that causes a progressive breakdown of nerve cells in the brain. And it deteriorates a person's mental and physical abilities. And it strikes young, usually during prime working years for a person. Um, and it's, it's progressive, and it can, it, it can last between 10 to 20 years. And um, usually end of life, folks need to be taken, you know, have 24-hour care and full care. Oh. Okay. So um, I didn't want to take you off track, but I thought that was a fascinating question at that point about how many parents tell offspring. So you broke off your engagement, and then what happened? Well, 
I struggled. Um, I did not know if I could live with that uncertainty. I, I have OCD. My family does. And so I was, uh, I like to control things. Um, I felt mm-hmm. knowledge is power. That's what gave me strength. Um, and living with this unknown in my life, I just did not know mm-hmm. if I really could do that. And so I struggled with it for many months, and I had an epiphany. And what happened was a good friend of mine that I worked with, um, she was married. Her husband did a lot of traveling in his job. They'd been married a year. And her husband got on a plane in O'Hare International Airport in Chicago to come home from a business trip. The plane went up and crashed, and he died. And so I was just like, you know, upset that this happened to my friend. And I was like, well, you never know what's going to happen in life is what she said to me. And when she said that, I had an epiphany. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. And how do you walk away from the love of your life? Because you might have a genetic disease. And so how, and how did you mend that with him? <laughs> how did I mend it? Yes. Uh, well, he, he and I were still talking even though I broke, off, you know, broke it off with him. And he was mm-hmm. giving me time. He was giving me distance. And he was giving me you know, time to think through this because he wanted it to be the right decision for me. And so I called him up on the phone and asked him to forgive me. Mm-hmm. Oh. We were still we were mm-hmm. in different colleges, and so I called him. And, you know, he he wasn't ever mad at me, really. He had hoped that I would find my way back to him, and I did. And when you had that epiphany, what was, I mean, obviously, I understand time is short. You never know what's going to happen. You don't really have control over life, mm-hmm. which for someone with OCD is really <laughs> a scary thought. Um, but in in your epiphany, was helping his family part of that or was it I'll just do what I need to do or didn't you even think of that at the time? Um, I did because based on statistics with Huntington's disease there was four you know four children so in my mind I said oh my goodness and his sisters were my very good friends too and We, they were very, very close siblings because of the dysfunction in their family with their mother and, and all. And so I knew, you know, probability two of the four would have the disease. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, I could help, I could help take care of them. And so you were still in this thing of compassion. You were, you were coming at it from a compassionate, logical, and realistic sort of perspective. Yes, but it did still scare yes. me. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. I figured, what greater gift can you give to a person, though, than mm-hmm. to stick around, right. you know, when they're sick? That and is help true. them have the highest quality to their life. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's, that's very courageous. Well, Even though you may not think so because you went through it, but I, you know, I have to say that's incredibly courageous and compassionate. That, that, if we stopped the interview right now, I'd be so impressed. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, another. <laughs> I didn't. You know, I, I was. He was. He's my soulmate, and 
I struggled because I thought, how do I fall out of love with this man who hasn't hurt me? And would I ever find another true love? I mean, love was always there, and love was a driving factor, pretty much, too. Yeah. Because if he, if he did get sick, I could take care of him, and I would take care of him. So how did you develop that really deep compassion at such a young age? Like, was your family very compassionate, or just have you naturally been in that well, state? Well, my mother was a very, very empathetic person. Mm-hmm. And I have the same qualities as she does. And she was always helping people, you know, came second nature to her. And I have three sisters, and she, you know, she was always there for us, as our dad was too. But she was a very loving, caring, empathetic person. And, and I, you know, thank goodness got those traits from her. Mm. All right, and do you I have think- any siblings? Do you have any I have siblings? three sisters. Oh, wow. You have three sisters, too. Mm-hmm. And John has so three you, sisters. So you definitely could relate to the sister thing. Um, yes. Yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so you go back to John, and, and how long into this relationship did things start to manifest themselves in terms of uh, disease? Well, my husband... Um, my husband does not have the mutated gene, but um, his three, and we didn't know that until last year. He was genetically okay. tested last year. But um, Laura, um, she, her symptoms, um, her first symptom was depression, which is the first psychiatric symptom of Huntington's disease, severe depression. That was like four years after we got married. Okay. Mm. And... Um, you know, each sister presented differently with their symptoms, but um, Laura's, um, she chose to self, well, she self-medicated mm-hmm. and um, pretty much, you know, drank herself to death, mm-hmm. unfortunately. She was in four rehabs and, um, you know, it was, she just had, she... She was the oldest, and she saw the mother, um, when she'd come home, the father would bring um, the mother home for visits from the psychiatric hospital, and she was the oldest, though she was very young, she had to care for her mother, and I mean, at a really young age, like six and seven. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, she was just very, very fearful. And um, she was unable to carry a child um, past first term, so she had this, um, you know, she really wanted to have children, and she couldn't. And so she had, you know, she had a couple demons that she just could not quiet. Yeah, well, at six or seven years old, to be caring for a mother who most people in their you know, adult life, well into their adult life, Mm. would have a very difficult time Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. understanding or, yeah, being able to cope with is, I mean, that's... uh, Right. Yeah, I mean, she was home for a week. Tremendously difficult. You know, yes. So, and and they didn't even know know what was wrong with the mother, you know, at that time. Mm. 
Because right. at that time, genetic testing didn't exist, and they yeah, also just didn't have a diagnosis at that time for the yes, mom, or they, they were just looking at the psychiatric side. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is yeah. also very common in Huntington's families, if they're, especially if they're not talking or disjointed. If you grow, if you kind of draw up the whole family tree and, you know, when you started the interview, you said, yeah, like you, when you figured out the mom had this, then you could look at the rest of the family and go, oh yeah, I see it in the rest of the family. But if you don't know that, it's like a big puzzle. Right. right. Yeah. And, so. and my, my father, uh, my husband's father kept them, kept them away from the mother's side of the family. You know, there wasn't any interaction going on. And so he didn't know that there were, um, you know, brothers and sisters that had this disease also. Right. And it sounds like even if he had known at the time, he would probably have not told them um, at that age, certainly, I would think. Yeah. Um, Well, amazing, sad. Um, yeah. When, when we come back on the other side of Master Your Life, um, you'll tell us about your efforts then in helping these three sisters and then the larger community of people suffering from Huntington's disease because you've made a huge contribution and we want to hear about that on the other okay, side thank you. of Master Your Life. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. If you've been searching for fat loss and mental clarity in one place, think ketosis. Maybe you've heard about a ketogenic diet, but have been totally turned off by the painstaking effort to do it. Well, agonize no longer because there is a solution. What could be just as simple and easy as taking your daily vitamins? Visit reallifetraining.expert to find out. Raise your hand and get in on the front end of the total wellness revolution. Get well, manage your mood, clear your mind. Visit reallifetraining.expert now. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Master Your Life. To reach Leah Mattinson, Dr. Howard Rankin, or their guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Leah, that's L-E-A-H-A, at changeyourlife.expert. Now, back to Master Your Life. Welcome back to Master Your Life. I'm Dr. Howard Rankin, along with my co-host, Leah Mattinson. And today we are talking with Therese Crutcher-Moran, who has an amazing, amazing story about helping her husband's family um, with... Huntington's disease, and we're about to continue on this journey before, um, in the first segment, Teresa was sort of setting the scene about what happened when she discovered that her fiancé's family had this problem. Naturally, she withdrew and really didn't know what to do, but um, in case you missed it, after a friend's husband died tragically in in an airplane accident, uh, she realized life is is very short and decided that she would go back to the love of her life and, and do whatever was necessary, which is amazingly courageous. So 
we've got to the point in the story where now um, some of your sister-in-laws or sisters-in-law are uh, beginning to manifest symptoms. Yes. And tell us how your role evolved in that. Well, as I said, my husband and his three sisters were very, very close. And they drew strength from each other. And they needed to be around each other. Um, and I knew that from the very, very start. Um, and so when um, Laura first started showing symptoms, <clears throat> she didn't live too far from us. Um, she went into rehab, her first rehab, and my husband was very involved in that. Um, and we were, you know, really looking after her. Her husband walked out on her because of that, and so she was alone. So she then moved in with us. And, um, you know, she tried, continued to try and have, you know, she had a job and, and all, but it all was becoming very difficult. At that time, my second sister-in-law, Marsha, she um, was in a terrible car accident. And, um, yes, she was in a terrible car accident. And um, she had had, I had seen symptoms of Huntington's for the earlier for about two years. And she was unable to work after that and became disabled. And we moved her to to where we live in Auburn and um, moved her into an apartment and um, helped her live independently. And um, that's when I um, moved into the arena of hospice was at at that point. And I truly believe I was led to work in hospice because I had a need to know how to care for the dying and all the psychosocial issues that come along with with dying. And so I, I, I worked at a local hospital in our little town. And um, so at that point, um, I really found a lot of strength working in hospice. That may sound kind of strange. People always say, how can you work in hospice? But when you work with the dying, it helps you be mindful of what you have in your life. Mm-hmm. Yep. Can you explain so, a little bit more what hospice is? Just because lots of people might have heard the term but actually not understand what it really is. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. Um, hospice is um, it is a health a service, a, a health care service offered to folks that have been given a terminal diagnosis. Um the way the hospice works in the United States anyway is you have to have a diagnosis of six months or less to your life before you can come on, be, be open to hospice care. And the hospice is a, is a team approach. It's a multidiscipline team that <clears throat> usually takes care of folks when, in their home, mm-hmm. but we do go into nursing homes also, and sometimes there are hospice homes where people can go to live, but we usually deal with people in their home. And so the interdisciplinary team cares for the patient, but also the unit of care is the family and the patient because they're going to be taking care of their loved one. Mm -hmm. So the team um, is a nurse, 
social worker, physical therapist. Um, we have a medical director. We have a, um, an occupational therapist. We have a, um, a dietitian. We have a volunteer. Um, and, and we work with the family and listen to what they want to have happen, what the patient wants to have happen. And we, and we um, the main goal when we first enter the home is to help the patient get out of the pain that they're in. And then we work on what, you know, what that person wants to have happen in their life. And, mm-hmm. and we, we help them have the highest quality to their life as possible. And in the States, it's paid for under Medicare and Medi-Cal, and I'm not sure in Canada. You probably have a program similar. It's interesting because people would say, oh, what a, um, you know, what a grim job in a way. You know, here you're around, people are dying. But I suspect it isn't really like that at all. It's um, not. I, I can see how it could be unbelievably reward, rewarding and in some ways inspiring, but, but mm-hmm. I've never worked, worked in a hospice, so I don't know. Tell us what it's like, because you know what we're talking about here is exactly at this interface. How do you deal with people who are dying and know they're dying? Mm-hmm. Um, I work with incredible people, people that work in hospice, work in hospice for a long time, 10, 20 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And it's because we get such gratification from knowing these people and learning about their lives and helping to validate their lives. Um, and they give us so many gifts. They give us knowledge. And, and people who are dying tell you the truth. <laughs> and, yep, that's refreshing. <laughs> Yes, makes and, it much easier to not have to be a mind reader. <laughs> yeah, right, huh? Isn't it? And you yes. know what? The what I took out of my experience was that it was the greatest gift the family could give them to let to allow hospice to come in and to have that person in their home where they made their memories, where they had the things around them that was important, and have their loved ones there, not being kicked out of the hospital because it's past the time of visitors. And for us to be allowed to be in this transition from this life to the next was mm-hmm. was just so gratifying. Mm-hmm. It was It was a gift to us, and we were honored to be allowed into into their home and into their family. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, well, not only the work, but also the explanation about what it is. I, I really do think a lot of people don't know what hospice even is. And so it's kind of this, it's a missed opportunity as well for um, people who are on that six-month kind of um, plan to be able to get real, really genuine love, care, and and compassion for themselves and their families because it is a a time of transition. I would like to talk a little more pr- about your story. So you had yeah. your two sisters, sister in laws, sorry, 
um, you know, one struggling with the addictions and, and one uh, being in this horrific car accident. Was the car accident caused by Huntington's or was the car accident the result of something else? It was the result of Huntington's. She, her reactions were, were very slow and, um, yeah, it, it, it mm-hmm. really had to do with Huntington's. Right, right. And, and then the, and the third sister, were, sister-in-law, where did she kind of come in? Where was she at at that time? The third when sister-in-law? Started in hospice? Yeah. Um, well, Cindy was the third sister, mm-hmm. and um, she came along. Uh, she was in Canada, actually. <laughs> she lived mm-hmm. in Vancouver, mm-hmm. and for most of her life, after she got out of high school, she moved to Canada because she was a free spirit, and she was a nature, um, wanderlust kind of woman that <laughs> that embraced life and materialistic things were not important to her and she traveled around the world she worked to make money to travel <laughs> mm-hmm. and so her her diagnosis didn't come in, um, for quite a few years later um, if I could back up my sister my first sister-in-law Laura with um, that self-medicated she passed mm-hmm. away um, about four years after she started having problems, and she had cirrhosis of the liver, and wow. she yeah. fell and had a cerebral hemorrhage mm. and passed away. Oh. Mm. And um, that was, you know, very difficult. I mean, sudden deaths are really difficult. Yes, yeah, and, and now was she living with you at that time? She was not. She had moved out, and we were, oh. you know, watching over her. But mm-hmm. um, no, she was. She was not at that time. She didn't want to, you know. She wanted to be independent, and you know, we were supporting her. Um, but unfortunately, that happened. Mm. And so, and so, this was this was in the late '80s, and so there, you know, there wasn't a test. So she was never really officially diagnosed with HD. But my husband and I feel that she did. She did have HD, hmm. and it just affected right. her more psychologically, you know, to begin mm-hmm. with. Yeah, it's right. such a complex. It's such a complex disease, and I think it's like with any disease, so that the complexities of it um, really do make it difficult to. Like, I love the word "manage." Kind of makes me laugh. <laughs> it's uh-huh. like you're not you're not really managing uh-huh. anything. You're managing what is ever happening in that moment. <laughs> So <laughs> it's like, all right. Um, and, and as you described kind of what, you know, the stages that that the girls went through, that just going, you know, it, it, it's um, very moment to moment, these decisions. So sudden vehicle accidents are the catalyst for making other decisions. Or you know, when you see people have whatever the symptoms are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, then you're, you're responding to things all the time. Uh, and, and so um, along the way, there's a lot of what I love to call surprises. Well, that was a surprise. <laughs> so <laughs> that was a surprise. Now what are we going to do with that surprise? Uh, mm-hmm. And so was that kind of your, how did, how did you feel about it? Like, what was your feeling? Do you, do you seem like a fairly lighthearted um, spirit? Is that, you know, lighthearted but, and serious at the same time? Is that part of your coping sort of strategy with this whole life? Well, when I chose when I chose this path mm-hmm. to to go down, um, I I've always been a very positive person, and we just didn't want to see this as a black 
cloud over us. John and I just, we embraced each other and we embraced life and we, we tried to do the things that we wanted to do now, you know, and not wait till later. But we didn't, you know, we, we just didn't dwell on the negativeness because that wasn't any good for us physically. Um, and, and you know what? These four people were the most positive people you would have ever met in your life. They were just, you know, I, I've never, they're the most positive people I've ever met in my life is all I can say. And so even when, um, you know, when Laura passed away, I mean, it was difficult and all. But my husband said, you know what, Therese, she was only meant to be on this earth for 41 years. Mm. That's all. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she lived her life the way she wanted to. Right. Right. Uh, well, I'm sure having a positive attitude is really critical, but it's a lot easier said than done. Yes. And it sounded like these, you know, this family were amazing in their support of each other. And, of course, your support of them. Um, yeah, I mean... You can say, "Well, I'll try to be positive," but but mm-hmm. it's not <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not always that easy, right? Well, some days I did it better than others, That's I would right. say. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. also working in hospice, as I said, um, was was a very positive experience. I mean, you know, it's sad when people die, but when the hospice team went in, we didn't. You know, they weren't our family. We didn't have a long-term relationship with them. And, I mean, it was sad when they died, but we know that we helped them make that transition. So it was, it was very positive working in hospice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, I, and, from my, and my experience, for sure, Therese, has been that when, once you habituate yourself to a certain way of thinking, your worldview is that way. Mm-hmm. And I, often people are surprised by, they'll go, well, don't you find it difficult to think positively? And I actually go, I find it difficult to think the, uh, negatively. Mm-hmm. That to me is like the struggle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I go, I didn't even occur to me to think poorly about that thing because that's not in how I've habituated my thinking throughout the years, which of course, and you've alluded to that a bit with your mom being so, um, you know, caring and, and probably optimistic and that you got the good genes on that side of things. I'm just laughing about that <laughs> little side, the good genes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and so people can learn to have this, um, it's a skill to have a positive mindset. Also, and you know, you know what, that, that, that's yeah. what it was, was I had to learn to, to, to be this way and, and Huntington forced me Mm-hmm. forced me into that, and that was good. Mm-hmm. And though yeah. Huntington's is horrible, there were lessons that I'd learned from Huntington's, mm-hmm. and that was one of them. Yeah, I mean, no question about that. I mean, you know, an OCD person is is typically not that positive. They're, wor- they're warriors. They see so many possibilities. And to turn that around, that mindset around, is really, really quite an achievement. So I totally get it when you say it made a big difference to you. Now, when we come back on the other side of Master Your Life, we're going to get Teresa to talk about the practical things that if you're in these sorts of situations, you have family members with a genetic 
chronic disease, the things that you really have to do um, to make life manageable and even positive. So when we come back on the other side of Master Your Life. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. If you've been searching for fat loss and mental clarity in one place, think ketosis. Maybe you've heard about a ketogenic diet, but have been totally turned off by the painstaking effort to do it. Well, agonize no longer because there is a solution. What could be just as simple and easy as taking your daily vitamins? Visit reallifetraining.expert to find out. Raise your hand and get in on the front end of the total wellness revolution. Get well, manage your mood, clear your mind. Visit reallifetraining.expert now. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Master Your Life. To reach Leah Mattinson, Dr. Howard Rankin, or their guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to Leah, that's L-E-A-H-A, at changeyourlife.expert. Now, back to Master Your Life. Welcome back to Master Your Life. We're here with my co-host, Dr. Howard Rankin, and our wonderful, compassionate guest, Therese Kutcher-Marin, who has written a book called Watching Their Dance, Three Sisters, a Genetic Disease, and Marrying into a Family at Risk for Huntington's Disease. And before the break, we were talking about Therese's uh, journey in um, healthcare administration and in hospice care and in taking care of her um, husband, not knowing if he was actually gene positive for Huntington's disease or not, and his uh, three sisters at all of their varying ages and stages of, of living with this disease. And one of the things I have experienced, Therese, along the way and is that when I first got my genetic status, which was about nine years ago now... Mm-hmm. What people's response to me was is keep your chin up, <laughs> and I was. And so one of the things that I it was a noticing for me along the way of how uncomfortable people are yeah. about actually just saying, "Hey, like, how are you doing with that?" or "Hey, how are things going?" and then listening to mm-hmm. what's going on. And so I'm just wondering, like, in your experience in this segment, I just like to talk a little bit more about your. 38 years of experience with this disease and your biggest learnings about how do you, you know, how do you help people navigate through not only families, but how do you help, you know, people to learn how to communicate with other people who are uh, going through this experience? Um, well, number one is, is um, communicating with each other and sharing feelings, I think. And, and I, I had that with these you know, beautiful people, but I also stepped out of that and I had um, a counselor for myself mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that I could stay strong and, and talk about things that, you know, were were hard for me and, and to, um, you know, learn some lessons from that person to control some of my stress. So, you know, people... I think support groups, you know, are, are a wonderful thing. 
Um, so, and then other ways, um, I think, for families to live with uncertainty is, um, you know, to be, to take care of your body and to, to eat well and to exercise and, um, and to be mindful as we talked about and trying to live in the, pre- the present. But also, I think a, a big thing for me was forgiveness and, and not having anger. And that all kind of, I guess, is in, in communication, though, too. Um, because Huntington's, you know, changes people and, and we need to accept the changes that happen and be compassionate to support to support them. Yeah, I think the biggest difficulty in communication just generally is authenticity. And what it sounds like is you and your hospice team were able to create the environment where people could be authentic with you and tell you exactly what they were thinking, what they wanted, what they were feeling. And independent of the, in a sense, the content, that authenticity is what matters, right? Yes. And, and, you know, that's not that common, unfortunately. So I could see that being a blessing for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. And that was a blessing to me because I learned through, you know, my team and dealing with patients, I, I learned that skill or bettered my skill mm-hmm. so that I could take it into my own family. Though my yep. two sister-in-laws were on the hospice program that I worked in, too. Hmm. Yeah. So that then well. facilitated, you know, um, discussion, you know, with my husband and the sisters. Yeah, it would have been an ongoing... Like, did you learn, did you go to some communication courses? Did you, like, how did you learn how to... To communicate, as I think that's a really um, big missing piece for most people, because we can say, "Oh, people can just need to learn how to communicate authentically." Mm-hmm. But what are the actual, like, hard and fast skills of doing that? Is there two or three things that people could learn to do that would help them to open up their? It's like more than opening your ears; you need to open your heart, and that's a bit. That's a bit more of a skill set. So, is there, <laughs> are, there mm-hmm. things that, are there things that you think? Um, well, for myself, yeah. um, in in my job in hospice, mm-hmm. we had classes. Mm-hmm. You know, we had continuing education classes that um, we went to. And even as a team, we had um, support groups where we had a facilitator that came in. And, uh, you know, we had topics that we all wanted to, you know, expand our minds on. And, and so that that was, you know, ways for myself. And just in our family unit, I think, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was just coming together, um, you know, on a real regular basis um, that we were going to sit down and we were going to talk, you know, have dinner and, 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 and just talk about things. Yeah, I think that's really, I, I think that's really critical. I think the opportunity to talk is critical. Over the years, I've done some counseling with families where there is a member who is dying um, and just getting together and just being able to share and again, show that compassion, be authentic, get it out on the table, whatever 
anyone was feeling, I think is really huge. Um, and, you know, that's what's necessary. Um, and I'm sure there's not a lot of what Leah said earlier. Oh, well, keep your chin up. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's because people don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but I totally see how that would be invaluable and empowering, too. That's the word empowering. Though it was difficult for my sister-in-law's to share things, though, too, at times. And I had to respect that. Um, and, and, and just, you know, if they didn't want to talk about things, we didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And often I think people don't want to talk about things that are, that they feel either uncertain about or they're feeling ashamed of something that they've done. And with, with uh, Huntington's, the other, you know, some of the lovely aspects of it are, mm. you know, lowered impulse control, although I can look around society and see lots of people who are struggling <laughs> with that who don't have Huntington's. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a bit of a relief to me, just saying. <laughs> and, and I was blessed in the fact that yeah. these three women were very kind people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. Sue Huntington's, Especially Marcia and Laura, I mean, excuse me, Laura who passed away from self-medicating, but the Marcia and Cindy, they, they were very, very kind-hearted people, and they didn't have any angry outbursts, or they weren't un- uncooperative. They, when compromises had to be made, we talked about it, and they were okay with it, but they knew that we loved them, and we were doing it because we loved them, and we wanted them to have the highest quality. We were trying to have the highest quality to their life as possible. So yeah. maybe I had it easy compared to other families. Yeah, yeah I'm not sure about that. Um, and and can you just tell us um, kind of the circumstances or the ages um, the other two sisters were and what happened to them? Yes, Marsha, um, she was about 35 when she was diagnosed had symptoms mm-hmm. for a couple years before that. Um, she passed away when she was 49, so she struggled for about mm-hmm. 15 years with the disease. Um, she um, did go into a residential care facility here in the um, our community that we live in um, that a nurse friend of mine ran, and, and that is a, in, a, in a private home where they take care of about five, six, seven people. Mm-hmm. And it's private pay. Mm-hmm. And luckily, Marsha, she had worked for AT&T for many years and, and had saved money. And we were able you know, mm-hmm. to keep her there until she died. And um, then my third sister-in-law, Cindy, who lived in Canada, she, we thought for sure she was not going to have Huntington's because she did not have any signs until she turned 41. And then mm-hmm. it came on fast and furiously. And so my husband went to Canada when her friends had called us and moved her back to California because she needed um, someone, you know, to look after her. And um, she lived with her father in California, who didn't live too far from us for a few years, and then lived with us also on and off. And then she went into the same residential care facility that Marsha had um, and she struggled with Huntington's for about 12 years, and mm-hmm. she died at age um, 54. Wow. Oh. So, 
So but, along this process of watching your sister-in-laws go through this, how how did your husband mm-hmm. uh, take all this? Like you, you say, like he went didn't go for testing up until last year. So how did right. he? How'd that decision-making process go? <laughs> well, you know, because we were staring in the face of Huntington's for about twenty-eight years, mm-hmm. there was always a sister, you know, that was struggling. Mm-hmm. Sometimes yeah. two at one time. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I. Well, he said, "I have to live with the hope, Therese. and we mm-hmm. had hope all along. We really incorporated mm-hmm. hope in our lives from the very, yes. very start. We were focused on hope." all the time. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I agree with you um, if that's what you want to do. Because I asked him to have the test done in 1993 when it came out. Mm-hmm. And he just could not do it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and there was, you know, I was not angry about it or anything. I understood where he was coming from. But it was very, very difficult. These mm-hmm. siblings were so close. But luckily... They all lived in our community, and he and I, when they were in the residential care facility, we would go and visit at lunch, or we would take them to our children's games on Saturdays so they could still be in, involved in our life, even when they you know, needed to live in the residential care facility towards the end of their life. But, um, you know, he told me one time that this uncertainty was just like all the uncertainties that he had in his life growing up. And, um, you know, he dealt with those, those uncertainties, and this was just another one. Mm-hmm. Yes, and now you've answered, you've answered the unasked question, which was, did you have children? <laughs> and that, you know, we did, and it was yes. a very, very difficult decision. Mm-hmm. And so how many children do you guys have? We have a boy and a girl, and they're grown now. And and the factor um, that drove John to make the decision to have the test done was that both of our children last year were getting married. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. he, you could have knocked me over with a feather when he said (laughs) to me, I'm going to have the test done, Therese. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. what? (laughs) And he said, I want to give my children a definitive answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yep. That's a, that's a wonderful story. You also have done a lot of work in fundraising for local and and even statewide Huntington's uh, activities. So you've been heavily involved in that. You've done promotion. You've done a lot of talks. You've really mm-hmm. made this your mission. Oh, it God is. Bless it is. Our, and it's John and my passion. I mean, he. He has embraced this, though he will never read the book because he's lived it, and he mm-hmm. doesn't want to read okay. the book. Interesting, interesting, yeah. And that's Tell okay, but <laughs> he is my biggest ad- advocate and supporter, mm-hmm. and we are doing this together mm-hmm. and giving yeah. you know all the proceeds to the from the book to Huntington's Disease organizations around the world. And where can people get your book? Um, uh, they can go on Amazon, any Amazon throughout sure. the world, and it will be there in May. It's not currently there yet. So right. May 1st, it will be on all the Amazons. And, uh, so, so people can go on Amazon in May, buy mm-hmm. your book. They'll be able to um, also connect with you 
um, through your show links to your author webpage and yes. your Facebook page, and they'll be able to be lifted daily by um, the posts that you um, put on because you really do live your from your heart, Therese, which is the one thing that really struck me um, and why I reached out to you is that you're just uh, so completely, genuinely authentic um, and you're really working every day to uplift people's spirits um, within the Huntington's community. And I think the farther reach, too, in hospice, uh, and just I, for, as somebody that's within that community, I personally want to thank you for your work because I do think um, that it's a very scary area for people to wade into. Um, families fall apart from this um, disease. Um, they just don't know how to cope with it. And uh, your your experience, you're just you have so much experience and wisdom uh, that people can actually look to you as kind of a mentor. And how do I how do I handle this? And you just always have such a positive way of looking at things and encouraging people. So again, I just want to thank you for all of your work and um, encourage everybody to check out a copy of your book. Um, uh, watching their dance, three sisters, a genetic disease, and marrying into a family at risk for Huntington's disease. Howard, do you have any last-minute words? No, just to say you're an inspiration, Therese. God bless you. Thank you for all your incredible work. We need more people like you, mm. and it's just been a privilege to hear your story and talk to you, and I hope we can talk again soon. Yes, thank you so much, both of you. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Well, until next time, join us for more insight, intelligence, and inspiration on Master Your Life. Thank you for being a part of our show today. Master Your Life with Leah Mattinson and Dr. Howard Rankin can be heard every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go enjoy your successful life. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.